Well, I began a new Sunday school class at church. And as you know, the podcast, the Jed Breaks Bread podcast, came out of a Sunday school class originally. And so it's time to return to the roots of the podcast and to record these lessons that I taught on Sunday mornings for you, the listener. Now, why did I start this podcast? I began the podcast so that those who were in my class would have the opportunity to re-listen to the material that was taught and have another opportunity to digest it during the week. And I think this is a huge benefit to you, the listener, and it's a benefit to me, the teacher, as well, because I have the opportunity to maybe answer some questions that were raised in the class. Um, I also have the opportunity to refine the talking points uh, from Scripture so that the outlines are really tight and well-organized. And I think it's a great benefit for the class because they can, uh, again, re-listen to the material and benefit a second or third or fourth time from it. Now, you may be asking, okay, that's great you're teaching a podcast series on marriage, but I'm not married. What about me? What should I glean? What should I gain from this podcast? Well, let me tell you what I think you can gain. First, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about a important relationship that God has established in the life of two people. Now, marriage is one of many relationships that all people have. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to say that all people are married, but all people have relationships. And so the foundational principles and the theology that is behind having a successful marriage, the practice of that theology will also aid you as you have other relationships in your life, whether it's a relationship to um, just other men and female friends, male and female friends, whether it's a relationship to your boss or your coworkers, uh, whether it's a relationship to siblings, uh, or whether you're a single person and you're saying, you know what, I'd, I'd like to be married some days. What are some, some things that I should be working on in my life right now to help make that transition better. That's what you ought to be doing. That's how you ought to be thinking about these lessons. Now, if you are married, you should be saying, you know what, I got to get my wife or my husband to listen to this podcast and let's go through this material together so that we can both be blessed and um, not blessed just because you listen, but blessed because we're, we're going to take this material and really seek to live it out, to apply it to life, to have a life that is radically changed and transformed because of the power of the Word of God. All right, so where are we going to start? Well, the first place that I want to start really is in kind of thinking through stereotypes. I want to talk about stereotypes and challenge stereotypes and maybe offer, not maybe, definitely offer a better way to perceive members of the opposite gender. Okay. So to begin with, what stereotypes might you have about men or women? What might you have? I think that there are common stereotypes in our culture that say, you know, men, they're just tough. They don't have feelings. Uh, they don't cry. They don't whine. Uh, men, 
are generally rough around the edges and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And then what are the stereotypes about women? Well, there's a lot of them. You know, women are nurturing, they're caring, they're not logical because they're only feelings-based. Women are, you know, the weaker sex, the fairer sex. Okay, yeah. um, Where do stereotypes come from? And, And I'm not saying that those are the only stereotypes, but there's a there's a lot of stereotypes. Those are just some examples to get your mind thinking. Where do stereotypes come from? I would suggest this, that stereotypes come from a wrong view, a wrong perception of a group of people. In fact, um, Webster's Dictionary defines a stereotype as this. It's a standardized mental picture that is held in common by members of a group and that represents an oversimplified opinion, a prejudiced attitude, or a uncritical judgment. A stereotype is saying that someone or something conforms to a fixed or general pattern. Stereotypical thinking. In other words, to think about life in terms of stereotypes is a very dangerous way of thinking. Stereotypes are generated through our culture. All right? Our culture establishes stereotypes for us. And many of the ones that I listed off for you were found in American culture uh, many years ago. Now, I happen to pay attention to the culture, and I see that the stereotypes are changing. Okay, The stereotypes about men and women are changing. And I think that's in conjunction with the changing attitude that our culture has towards defined gender. We no longer are defining gender as male or female exclusively, but we are allowing people to define gender in any way that they would like to. Whether that's healthy or not healthy, whether it's true or not true, we are allowing individuals to define gender. And this is creating a a brand new set of stereotypes. Now, maybe you're listening from another culture outside of the United States. The stereotypes in your culture are cultivated through the expectations that men and women face in that particular place at that particular time. And I think a lot of people conform to stereotypes or they they try to conform to cultural expectations because they want to fit in. They want to adapt their personality and their philosophy of life to imitate the stereotype that is promoted about them. Now, why do I think stereotypical thinking is dangerous? Well, first of all, it's not biblical. All right, so that's the first reason. It's not a biblical way to think about people. When God says that men and women are both created in his image, he's talking about an equality that is intrinsic and inherent in the way that men and women relate to God and relate to one another. Stereotypes often don't promote equality. Stereotypes often promote inferiority. Well, you're a member of this group and you're inferior because of this stereotype. So, Right off the bat, stereotypes are unbiblical. 
Another reason that stereotypes are very harmful, and this is, a not a, this is not a healthy way to think, has to do with this fact, that many stereotypes, especially in the United States, are really a perversion of biblically defined, God-given roles and responsibilities that men have and that women have. And when you pervert God's original design, when you pervert God's expected stated outline for doing things, uh, you're going to end up with problems. And, you know, one of the reasons that we, we have stereotypes, one of the reasons we have problems is that God's original expectations, God's original intentions have been perverted because of the curse of sin. Now, let's be frank. God knew this was going to happen. God was not taken by surprise when Adam chose to eat the fruit rather than to obey God. God was not taken by surprise. All right, but what happened as a result of that has been the introduction of conflict into male-female relationships, into the marriage relationship from the time when Adam first ate the fruit all the way up to the present day, and it will continue that way until the glorified state. As long as we are under the curse of sin, we will have issues relating to one another as man and woman. But the way to deal with these issues, the way to overcome them, is not to say that well, you're just of this stereotype and you're just of that stereotype and because you're this way, we can't fix you so we just have to live with you. Or because you're that way, we can't fix you, we just have to live with you. Stereotype, stereotypes and thinking according to stereotypes is not a profitable way of thinking. It's a lazy way of thinking. It's lazy because it looks for easy solutions to complex problems. All right, yeah, the curse of sin made things difficult. The curse of sin resulted in God's perfect complementary design being perverted by sinful man and sinful woman so that men became domineering and overbearing in their rule of their women, that would be their wives, and their households. And the curse of sin made women rebel against that and have a desire to rule their husbands when they really weren't created to be the rulers. They were created to be the suitable helpers. All of that and the effects of that have played out in societies over the last six to 8,000 years. And if you today are a Christian, and you continue to think about male-female relationships in terms of stereotypes, it's a lazy way to look at the problem. It's a lazy way to deal with the complexities of the curse. Why is that? Well, for one, putting a stereotypical label on an individual is not able to get to the root of sin issues, nor is it able to reveal the motivations of the heart. If you've been listening to my podcast or you've been listening to my teaching, 
You know that often I talk about the influence of the heart and the mind. I think this is what Jesus talked about a lot in his teaching. And so I think there's a great, in fact, I believe there's a strong precedent for looking continually at the motivations of the heart. Stereotypes don't get to those motivations. Stereotypes don't allow you to address deep-seated sin issues. You know, in Mark chapter 7, I believe it's Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees because they were saying, well, you don't wash your hands the right way. They were looking at Jesus and his disciples according to a particular stereotypical pattern. You guys don't fit the stereotype. Why aren't you doing what everybody expects you to do? You're supposed to be good Jews. You need to do this. And Jesus' response is basically, look, um, to make a person clean or unclean, it doesn't matter how you wash your hands. What really makes a person clean or unclean is what goes on inside their heart. And so if out of the heart come murder and envy and strife and contentions and Uh, evil words and anger and so forth and so on, if out of the heart all of those things proceed, then you're an unclean person. See, stereotypes address the external. You're this way because you belong to this group. Somebody would say about me, well, you're an evangelical. That must mean you're a racist and a bigot. Oh, okay. Thanks. In fact, that's absolutely not what I believe at all. I'm not racist and I'm not a bigot because I believe that every person is created equally in the image of God. And as image of God bears, we all have an equal value and worth and Jesus died to pay for the sins of all of us. So if you say to me, you're an evangelical, therefore you must be a racist and a bigot, I'll say to you, no. In fact, I uphold and value human life more than you do well, why won't you let two gay men get married? Because it's sin. (laughs) And there's an objective moral standard that we have to adhere to. We're accountable to, and it's found in the Word of God. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I don't like those people. I like them just fine. I don't have any problem with them personally. I have a problem with sin because the Bible has a problem with sin. But as people... They are image bearers who are equal to me and I respect them and I want them to not only experience the best in this life, but the best in the next life. And if you continue in sin without repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, you will not experience the best in the next life. You will go to the place that God calls the lake of fire. All right, so look, If you're going to say in a stereotypical way or place a stereotypical label on somebody, you are not doing due diligence as a explainer of truth, as somebody who has demonstrated that you really care about that person. When you think according to stereotypes, it leads you to faulty conclusions and faulty solutions. And the fact of the matter is, if you're having a serious discussion with somebody, and you reference them, 
or make a reference to them or somebody that they care about as part of a stereotypical group, well, you are this way because of X, Y, Z. What does that do? That immediately puts them on the defensive. It makes them not take seriously the things that you want to say because now all their focus is, focus is on this argument that you made against them. Really, they probably view it as an attack that you made against them. So stereotypes are very harmful in discussions. That's why I say they're lazy. The lazy thing to do is to assume somebody is part of a certain group or group of people. And because you're part of this group of people, you think this way. Not true. Furthermore, to think in terms of stereotypes is to limit our infinite God. God made men and women to be much more complex than a simple reduction produced by a stereotype or encapsulated by a stereotype. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that you're, you have a personality, you have a will, you have emotions, intellect. You have the ability to be creative and to imitate our creator God. There is a broad range of things that you are able to do as somebody who is created in the image of God that the animal kingdom cannot even fathom, cannot even do. To be made in the image of God is very, very special. And when you reduce, when you reduce an image of God bearer to a collection of stereotypes, you've done not only a disservice to that person, but a disservice to the Creator God. Don't do that. I know it's hard to get rid of stereotypes. I know it's difficult to think outside of that realm, outside of that box, but we've got to get rid of them. We have to overcome stereotypical thinking. And if you're in a marriage relationship right now, and you're like, man, I have issues in my marriage, or I have this one issue that I keep banging my head up against. Maybe you've been approaching that issue from a perspective of my wife fits this stereotype or my husband fits this stereotype, and you've been trying to solve the issue according to the model of the stereotype. If that's true, no wonder you're hitting your head up against the wall because people are more complex than a stereotype. So if not stereotypes, then what type? What is the goal that we ought to be conformed to? I think you know the answer. I know the answer. The ideal type is Christ. If you're a believer, if you are a believer, your goal is conformity to Jesus Christ, not a stereotype. And you shouldn't uh, boast about your stereotypes I mean, we can poke fun of them, we can, we can make fun of them, but we ought not to glory in stereotypes. Rather, we ought to glory in the fact that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our character must be shaped by the Word of God. The way that we interact with our spouse must be shaped by the Word of God. We cannot throw our hands up in the air and say, we'll never change because of such 
stereotype A or stereotype B or whatever the case might be. You can't do that. Because if you're a believer, your goal is transformation by the Word of God and the power of God according to the Spirit of God who lives within you. And what has God used to break the power of sin and begin the process of transformation? Why? It's the very blood of Jesus Christ himself. It is the very blood of Jesus that God the Father declared would reconcile the relationship between the lost sinner and the holy, perfect God. And so the gospel, the gospel is incredibly important for every person, every image of God bearer to understand because the gospel accomplished the rescue of a soul that was condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire. It accomplished the rescue from that future, that fate, to one of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and to then being an heir in the kingdom of God and being of the privilege and having the glory to stand with Christ and to worship him for all of eternity. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, after having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. The power of the gospel is incredible. And God's great love is unmeasurable. How in the world could God the Father conceive of this plan to send his son Jesus to pay the price for us, for our sins, when we were his enemies, and then reconcile us through that price? And to reconcile means to be brought into a close relationship once again. You were close, then you were separated and you have become close again. Well, how does this truth about the gospel and what has happened between us and God, how does that apply to the marriage relationship? I can think of no other relationship on earth that is as close or as tight or as special as the marriage bond. And your marriage needs the application of the gospel every day. That doesn't mean you need to be saved over and over and over again each day. But what you really need in your marriage is to practice the principles that are essential and that comprise the foundation of the gospel. What are they? Well, sin separates, first of all. In the gospel, sin separates man from God. And in marriage, sin separates spouse from spouse. You will sin against one another, and sin breaks fellowship. So where do you go then when sin has broken fellowship? Well, in the relationship between you and God, you go to the cross. Because there on the cross, when Jesus died, 
and his blood was spilt, all the sins of all the people who have ever lived were paid at that point. Jesus' blood propitiated that. It means satisfied God's wrath against sin. And so the sinner goes to the cross to find payment for sin before the throne room of God. In the same way, when one spouse sins against another spouse, you still go to the cross because that sin that you committed against your spouse needs to be paid for or has been paid for. Let me say this more accurately. The sin that you committed against your spouse has already been paid for at the cross. And so you don't need to make your spouse pay again for that sin. That's the vindictive part of us. That is that is the part of us that wants to seek our own vengeance and to seek our own retribution. You did such and such to me, and I want to make you pay for it. Well, yeah, that person did sin against you, and that was a that was an egregious sin. That was really bad. But, but, the payment for that sin has already been made at the cross of Calvary. So don't make your spouse pay for the sin that they committed. So you need to remember that the payment for sin happened at the cross and can be forgiven, must be forgiven at the cross. Do you realize what this truth points out to us? That you and your spouse are both equal before God. You're both equal because you both stand indebted to God and indebted to Jesus Christ for how he's cared for your sins. And so if you would adopt this idea into your marriage, that yes, we will sin against one another, and yes, the payment for sin has already been made, it will help you in resolving conflicts because you will adopt a forgiving attitude. Instead of being vindictive and wanting to seek retribution, you will say, you know what? Because of the blood of Christ, I can forgive you. Now, you're, you're not standing in the place of God. You're not, you're not um, sending their sins away in the same level or at the same tier that God is sending the sins away. But what you're saying to them is this, because I know Jesus paid for that sin, I'm not going to make you pay for it again. And I'm going to seek reconciliation with you so that we can avoid bitterness and anger towards one another or a deep-seated dislike even though we're married. You and your spouse are equal before God and both of you must adopt a forgiving attitude. You both need the cross. You both need the payment for sin. And you both need to learn how to reconcile with one another on account of the blood of Jesus Christ. To have a forgiving attitude means this, that you're going to be quick to ask for forgiveness and you're going to be quick to grant forgiveness. And again, this is an intellectual exercise. Does it matter how you feel? No, if somebody says, you know what, I, please forgive me. I, I spoke to you in a really harsh tone of voice I, I recognize by your response that you, that it was sinful, that it really hurt you, 
I, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that to you. That was wrong of me. Please forgive me. Okay. The request for forgiveness has been made. An appeal has been made to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're on the receiving end of that, what are you going to say? No. No, I don't want to forgive you. It's not time yet. Okay, wait a second. Time out. No, I don't want to forgive you. No, it's not time yet. No, I don't feel like it. Are you saying that you know better than God about what types of payments need to be made for sin? Are you saying that you know better than God when the transaction of forgiveness should occur? You're saying all of that and a whole lot more if somebody comes and asks for forgiveness and you're unwilling to grant the forgiveness. We all need to eat some serious humble pie when it comes to our relationships because we are tempted. And I think a great many of us, if we're honest, will admit that we don't grant forgiveness as quickly as we ought to. Now, just because you grant forgiveness, does that mean the hurt feelings go away? No, but it helps real quick. It helps make them fade away fast. But if you hold on to that and you replay that scenario over and over again and you're not going to forgive until you're good and ready to forgive, you may end up forgiving. But you may plant a seed of bitterness or a seed of rage or a seed of something down deep in your heart that will eventually grow and produce a hedge between you and your spouse. The gospel needs to be applied to marriage because we're sinners. And we're two sinners who are living in the closest possible union that God has established, even closer than children and parents. We're living in the closest possible union, and because we're still under the curse of sin, though we are redeemed and though we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we're going to sin against one another. Therefore, we must keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus Christ. We must be individually being transformed into the character of Christ, into the likeness of Christ, and we must be bringing that into our marriage. Your marriage needs the gospel every day because you need the gospel every day. John writes in his first epistle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. It doesn't say some. It sends all. And you know what the best part about it is? He's faithful and just. That means he's going to do it over and over and over and over and over again. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to say, well, this is a time too far. Yeah, I've forgiven this 490 times, but I'm not going to go for the 491st. You're done. No, aren't you glad God doesn't treat us like that? If you're glad that God doesn't treat us like that, then you ought not to treat your spouse that way. Well, this is just the beginning of our discussion on marriage and marriage principles. Really, not marriage principles, but biblical principles applied to marriage. That's a much better way to state that. And I hope that you will really be challenged to think differently about your marriage and about a great many things as we go through this communication and stewardship 
intimacy, and a whole host of other topics. May the Word of God do its work in your heart, that you would be transformed into the image of Christ. And may you personally bring glory to Christ, and may you and your spouse together bring glory to Christ as you are transformed into His image. Thank you for listening, and may you have a blessed day.